We've got a, a friend worship. I'm not going to put her on the spot. We've got a friend worshiping with us this morning, uh, sitting with my family, a dear friend from uh, part of the youth group when I was pastor down in Monroeville, Alabama. Um, she was much, uh, much younger then. Um, I was much younger then. Um, but great memories. Uh, I was actually able to visit with some, some dear friends from there just this past week and, uh, and thinking about the, the memories the, the pictures as we smile and flip through them uh, and the things that we're able to do. I was thinking about two friends of ours as I was looking at this lesson here. Uh, two twin girls uh, that were part of the, uh, the, uh, the young people in our church, uh, Rachel and Rebecca. Sweet young ladies. Um, whenever you'd see them and then you'd see their mother with them, it was a very interesting thing. An undeniable family resemblance. Undeniable, you'd look and you'd see Rachel and Rebecca, you'd see Faye, and you think, oh, obviously, that, that, that's family. Thomas and I get that. Folks all the time will look at Thomas, and I'd never heard this phrase until years ago when somebody said, well, pastor, you sure marked him well. <laughs> and now when folks tell Thomas that, you know, that there's no denying that he's my son, that he, he favors me, I make sure Thomas is polite and says, thank you. Now, when I think about the resemblance that my son may or may not bear to me, we think about height, hair, facial features, uh, this sort of thing, but there's also an undeniable uh, truth that so much of it is behavioral, so much of it is uh, the way that you would turn a phrase or the way that you would speak to others, uh, the way that you would act, the way that you would walk. Uh, folks would say that of me and my father as I was coming up. Here's the interesting thing. As I was thinking about Rachel and Rebecca, these two twins who favored their mother faith so much, what is truly remarkable about that is Rachel and Rebecca are adopted. Rachel and Rebecca were uh, adopted as infants, yet uh, you're compelled to admit when you look at them uh, that somehow, some way, they look so much like Faye. And it's not due to their genes and their DNA. There's another source to that family resemblance. This passage this morning is talking specifically about family. Uh, we read here in Mark chapter 3, read along with me, Mark chapter 3, the story of Jesus with his family and his disciples. And then Jesus' mother and his brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked them. And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Pray with me, Lord. May these words, your word, be written upon our heart that we might not sin against you. May your word <coughs> dwell in us richly, Father, that we would be equipped. Thank you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word endures forever and ever. Amen. We're in Capernaum. Uh, most likely we're back in the home of Peter. Uh, Peter and Andrew, uh, we've, we've already been there. Uh, this is where Jesus had, had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And it's probably, most, most commentators will agree, it's probably where the friends unthatched the roof and lowered uh, the, the crippled boy in, that he would be forgiven and healed by Jesus. They're there in this home in Capernaum, and Jesus has just spoken about what we talked about last week, that difficult passage we dealt with last week, where, where Jesus spoke about uh, blasphemy, 
He was talking about blasphemy and forgiveness of the sins because the, uh, the, the scribes of the Pharisees and even his own family were saying things about him that were not true. The scribes of the Pharisees saying that he was demonic and his own family saying he must be mad. These two groups dismissing Jesus as liar or as a lunatic. So Jesus' teaching uh, takes a bit of a, a sober tone. He, he speaks about a sin that would not be forgiven. That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit we talked about, that deliberate and, and fully knowledgeable rejection of the work of the Spirit and imputing to it evil intention and power, that such that the, the Spirit would withdraw. So he's got a serious message. And as he's speaking this serious message, the crowds undoubtedly listening intently, drawing in close, paying attention to what Jesus is saying. And suddenly a murmur comes through the crowd, a whisper coming from the the back. Now remember what happened before when they're in this very crowded uh, house that they couldn't get the boy in, they lowered him in. There would have been people sitting in the hallway, sitting on the floor, uh, sitting in the doorway, leaning in, looking in the windows. There would have been really no way Jesus was speaking and he was speaking about something so serious, so involved that people would have been just absolutely wrapped with attention. And a murmur comes to the crowd, a whisper comes, and finally the word makes it to Jesus And the words are said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. We begin by looking at at something that's really on the face of it, very clear, very straightforward, something important to realize, and that is Jesus had a family. Jesus had a family. There was a mistaken doctrine that continues to be be out there, mistaken doctrine uh, referred to as the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, it was uh, brought about at the Council of Constantinople and ratified in the 7th century in the Lateran Council, uh, but still persists in the Eastern and in the Roman Catholic churches that Mary was forever a virgin. Now, we do affirm that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that, that it was the Holy Spirit that united with Mary that Mary would bear Jesus. But... The very clear teaching is that that, that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary came about through a because of a different mistaken doctrine. That was mistaken doctrine is called the Immaculate Conception, not the Virgin Birth, but the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception was a, a mistaken doctrine that said at some point Mary herself had to become sinless so that she could bear Jesus. That she had to be sinless that Jesus could be born from her. What, it, what, that, what the problem is, is that's pursuing the mystery of the incarnation, how God becomes man. At some point, we have to stand up seeing the doxology and understand that this side of heaven, we're not going to understand that fully, but sometimes that's not good enough uh, for councils and for, for theologians, and they want to define it and define it and define it until some point they reach error. And, and the idea that Mary remained a virgin her whole life and then was assumed um, is a, a, a false doctrine, a mistaken doctrine. So if Mary was to always be a virgin, she couldn't have other children. Uh, But the clear teaching right here, we'll see it again in Mark chapter 6, we see it in Matthew chapter 13, is that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mark chapter 6 verse 3, they're they're questioning, the people around are questioning Jesus in his hometown, questioning him uh, about uh, about his authority. They're saying, isn't just Jesus the carpenter? 
Isn't this Mary's son? You know, Mary's boy. We know him. And isn't he the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? What's out four brothers. And aren't his sisters here with him? Matthew in chapter 13 also includes, as Matthew writes, he says, are not all of his sisters with him? Very deliberate in the, in the word that's thrown in there, not both of his sisters, but all of his sisters, meaning at least three sisters. So Jesus was part of a large family. At least eight kids. Big family. Now, the one person that's not mentioned in this particular narrative, not mentioned and, and is not mentioned throughout the rest of the gospel narrative, is Joseph. We see Joseph certainly uh, at, at his um, when he was betrothed to Mary. Uh, we see Joseph at the birth of Jesus. We see Joseph right up through Jesus at 12 years old when he's left uh, behind in Jerusalem. But we do not see him uh, in Jesus' public ministry. There's a lot of, of stories that sprung up about what might have happened, but, but the simple, the easiest, and the most likely thing that happened is at some point Joseph died. That, that Mary was a widow, uh, and because we see her, and we, we see the brothers and sisters. But we see the family of Jesus. Two of his brothers, James and Judas, we don't speak of the brother Judas too much as Judas, we speak of him as Jude. So, so we, we do see the two of the brothers, uh, half-brothers, we understand they would have been born uh, of Mary and Joseph, but the uh, uh, Jesus being born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, we could refer to them as half-brothers. But these two brothers uh, wrote New Testament books by their name, James and Jude. And now there's a problem. This large family, brothers and mom, there seems to be an indication that they think Jesus has is, is, is gone mad. They're worried about Jesus. Uh, they're, they're, they're wanting to draw him out. They're wanting to, to deal with it. There's difficulty. There's tension in the family. And this is so important to think about. So important to consider as we look at the person of Jesus and his ministry, not only in that day, but his ministry to us and through us today. Two things I want you to see when we begin by, by looking at the very simple uh, truth that Jesus had a family and there were some tensions and issues in the family. First is we do see the full humanity of Jesus. We see that he had a family. The humanity of Jesus has been attacked. The idea that, that, that Jesus, if he's God, he can't be man. And if he's man, he can't be God. Early in the church, there's a group known as the Ebionites. And they denied that Jesus was truly and fully a man. But we, we see this idea of, of being born of, of a woman, having brothers and sisters, being raised in a household and a home. It speaks to Jesus being a real man, a real man, not not somebody that showed up fully formed and showed up in his maturity and perfection. But but one, as we read in a, in a, in a way that I think it, it really it, it baffles me sometimes as to how this how God made this come to pass. But it says that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom before God and man, that a perfect child becomes a perfect man. But he had to learn. He had to grow. And he did so sinlessly. Everything that makes you and me human, apart from our sin nature, is Jesus's. Our Savior, the eternal Son of God, the one who was with God in creation, the one who knew perfect fellowship with God since before time and creation, that he, when the time was right, took to himself, this is the word of our confession, took to himself a true body 
and a reasonable soul. And so he was and he continues to be both God and man, two distinct natures, one person forevermore. That's the reality of of this Jesus, fully and really a man. And this is vital. It's important. We were going to see why it is, but but we also consider a a great warning. Uh, If you'll turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, um, our uh, our Tuesday morning women's Bible study. Uh, I don't think you've gotten to to 1 John 4 yet, have you? Still working your way there. Um, But 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. John speaks to us and, and, and speaks with a warning, speaks with some clarity, uh, speaks with helping us to understand uh, the true nature of the Spirit of God. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. It is the reality that Jesus wept, that Jesus slept, that Jesus ate, that Jesus bled. And upon the cross, enduring the wrath of God, Jesus died. And the reality is that in his glorified human nature, real and eternal, Jesus lives today. The dust of this world, flesh like ours, only glorified now sits on the throne of heaven. And why is that important? Because Jesus came to save men and women. He did not come as an angel to save angels. He did not come as a bull to save bulls. He did not come as a spirit to save that which is disembodied and ethereal. He came as a man to pay the price, to qualify as our replacement. This is vital to understand. And when we look at the the nature of Jesus and see that he was a young man, of a family, we see a bit of the full and true humanity of Jesus. It's a mystery, yes, but is absolutely essential. For if we deny that Jesus came in the flesh fully and perfectly as a man, it says the spirit that dwells in us is not the spirit of God, but that of the Antichrist, which is rampant throughout the world. What else do we see? We see right here that Jesus, not only we see his full humanity, but we see a savior who can relate to us. A savior who had family problems. Now I have to say, as the, the perfect, uh, the perfect son, while he would not have been the cause of those family problems, he might have, he was definitely the subject of those family problems. I mean, you know, I had a, I had a brother who, by the way, never had to crack a book all through high school. He, he turned books in at the end of his high school, uh, career, still in the wrappers. Now you say, well, how was that good? Yeah, he was also valedictorian. And uh, also president of the student body, captain of the football team. You know, there sometimes would be family problems that he may not have caused, but he was certainly the subject of them, having a perfect brother, which he was not. But in so many ways, he looked that way. Would have been tough. Now, consider Jesus. At this point, he had family problems. Isaiah 53 promised this. It spoke ahead about this. Isaiah 53, in anticipation of Jesus, describes him as being one who is despised, rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, a man familiar with pain. What a wonderful blessing of God that we have a Savior that, what? He understands. He understands we don't have a a Savior who is so different and distinct from us that he just can't relate to our pain. The words of the great hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. 
He says, have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. We go to a Savior who understands. We go to a Savior who at this moment was dealing with the fact that his family thought he was crazy. When he was abiding perfectly in the plan and the will of God. He was doing the right thing and he was called a lunatic by those who should have loved and embraced him the most. Hebrews chapter 4 explains this a bit to us, talking about temptation, talking about sin, but he speaks and says this in Hebrews 4 verse 15, it says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. It goes on to say he was tempted in every way only without sin. He knows what temptation is, but he also knows what the pain and the heartbreak He knows the the pain of abandonment. He knows not only from his physical family, but he will know it from his disciples who run scattered, who the one that he knew it would happen and he promised would happen and the one who denied it would happen. But Peter himself, with a curse, called out three times, I don't know this man. Denied Jesus because he was scared and selfish. It was in 1992, not when this took place, but 1992, a little more recently, President George... Herbert Walker Bush uh, was, was seeking re-election. And there was a, a, a bit of, of, of campaign rhetoric that was put out there. It was actually published and exaggerated just a bit in the, um, the New York Times. What they did was they, they showed the president uh, at a cash register. Uh, he was at a cash register in a supermarket. And the, uh, the, the clerk was taking merchandise and scanning it. Beep. And the barcode reader, and it was put in right up there. And, and the, the story was this, president amazed by the technology of a supermarket scanner. And this was picked up in the opposition's campaign and saying, see, this is a man who is so detached from reality, so distant and removed that he is out of touch. How can he understand your financial problems if he doesn't even know how a supermarket works? <laughs> now, Now, the truth of the matter is, I don't know of a president who does his own shopping, <laughs> who's ever done his own grocery store work, you know, going and thumping melons and checking for freshness on his bread. They have a staff to do that, and I'm kind of thankful that the president has somebody to attend to that type of business. And he doesn't necessarily have to understand how I have to live my life. But it is an important thing that our leaders would understand us. And people picked up on that theme. And what a wonderful thing it is that as we look at and get the snapshot into the family life of Jesus, that we understand that our Savior knows. And so when we struggle with our, with our spouses, when we struggle with our children, with our parents, with our siblings, that we can go to our Savior who understands. Matter of fact, everything that we go to Jesus about, he is going to understand and not look at you and shake his head and say, I'm sorry, I got nothing for you. So Jesus had a family, and he understands our every weakness. Now, now look at what takes place here. The, the whisper has come to Jesus. They said, your mother and your brother and sisters are outside. And what does Jesus say in response? He, he looks around, and he asks this question, verse um, uh, 32, uh, uh, those little bitty, 33. He says, who are my brothers and my mother, he asks. We need to to think carefully about the nature, what the tone would have been, and 
and, and what the, the characteristics of that question would have been. There's, there's some things we can immediately dismiss, uh, but there's some other things we need to consider. Now, we look at a passage like this, <clears throat> and it would be very easy for us to impute our own uh, sinful or sarcastic tone to it. But, but don't. Don't do that. Our Savior is not sinful. He's not sarcastic. Uh, it's just like when, when Mary came to Jesus in John chapter 2 and says, Jesus, they're out of wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, remember? And how does he respond to him? What is his first word out of his mouth? He looks at his mom and he says, woman, don't ever talk to your mom that way. <laughs> I would recommend to none of our children that you look and when your mom tells you to do something, say, woman. <laughs> but that is bringing 21st century, even 20th century interpretation to a text that was in a different cultural context. Jesus was not speaking disrespectfully to his mother. Jesus did not backtalk his mom. He didn't. Why not? Well, we read about that in Exodus, don't we? 2012, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Jesus would not have been in violation of the fourth commandment. He perfectly kept the law. He honored, respected his mother, and indeed all those in rightful authority. This is not a disrespectful tone. Um, Jesus, he asks the very simple question and brings it about in a moment of teaching. Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mom. Neither is he being disrespectful to his family. You have to understand that Jesus would have loved his mom and loved his brothers and sisters with a perfect love, a love like none other. Think about Jesus and how he dealt with his mom uh, beyond this point. Even in John chapter 19, when Jesus is bearing the weight of all of our sins, enduring the fullness of God's wrath for my sins, what does Jesus do? He looks upon the disciple whom he loved and he looked upon his mother there and he said, once again, woman, lovingly, dearly speaking to his mother. He says, here's your son. And to that disciple, he said, and here is your mother. He, he provided for his mother, even at the moment of his death. No one has ever loved his mother or his family more perfectly than Jesus. But think about the teachable moment that's taken place. Jesus, as particularly in this day, when families had a, a much different dynamic than they have today. Families certainly are important to us. Uh, one of the main reasons we were so excited about moving back to Alabama was to be close to my parents, to Carol's family, be back close to family. We love that. But indeed, if the Lord had called us to someplace further away, that we must in faithfulness go. But we need to understand that in that day, the family was, was, was much different than, than simply those who just for a season uh, stay in one household and then scatter to the wind. I think about my brothers right now. I have a brother that lives in just outside of Jackson, Mississippi, and I have a brother that lives outside of Portland, Oregon. We love each other, yes. We, we talk to each other on the phone. We email and that sort of thing. But in the day of Jesus, it would have been so much more than that. You would have become involved in the family business. There was even... The whole issue of what took place if one brother was to die and another brother uh, would actually marry the widow to make sure that the dead brother's name would endure. I mean, there was a, a, an intricate and an interdependent uh, devotion 
within the family in the day of Jesus. And so the disciples and all those who were listening to Jesus' teaching were right there. They're seated in a circle. And Jesus looked at them and looked around the room. I believe made eye contact in such a wondrous way. And says, here are my brothers and my mother. It's whoever does God's will that is my brother and my sister and my mother. Imagine that very, very teachable moment. Jesus has been interrupted. A request from his flesh and blood, his kin has come to him. Certainly, they think family's more important. Jesus is going to put us on hold and he's going to go out and talk to his family. But he doesn't. So what is he teaching them and what is he teaching us today? Years ago, I was uh, talking with a friend of mine who happens to be a Greek Orthodox priest. Um, I was actually in seminary um, and he was coming to take seminary classes in the Presbyterian Seminary just I guess out for grins and giggles. I don't know. He's already ordained as a priest, but was coming to this Presbyterian seminary. And uh, we had some great conversations with him, a dear, gentle brother. But we disagreed. One of the things was about uh, prayer to Mary and prayer to saints versus prayer directly to God through Jesus. And and my friend, he he presented it in a way that, that makes sense. And, and in regard to human relationships, he says, if you want a friend of yours to do something, is there a more effective way than maybe getting his mom to talk to him about it? I know Thomas has figured that out. He can ask me to do something, but if he gets Nana to tell me to do it, I'm going to be a little bit more receptive to the idea. But this passage at hand directly goes against that. What Jesus is, is speaking of is, is the fact that while family is rich and important, Jesus does not diminish the importance of family. What he does is he elevates the importance of the relationship of him directly to us, united through God the Father. That Jesus Christ has made for himself a new family. A new family that we have that direct access. We have only one intercessor between God and man, and that is Jesus And we come directly to him. And so Jesus looks around the room. He describes the occupants as family. He's not sliding his earthly kin. He's elevating his eternal kin. It's not being born of Abraham or even the same parents. It's about being an eternal child of God. In the New Testament, Paul picks up this theme, particularly in two different ways. Paul picks up this theme in two significant life events that alter the condition, the shape, and the makeup of a family. Two significant life events that could take place. One is adoption, and the other is a marriage. And Paul uses both of those events as a descriptive of being a Christian, doesn't he? Flip with me, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. So many of y'all have just studied it, uh, or in the midst of it, and that sort of thing in Sunday school. And the, the rich study of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, rich, wonderful chapter that begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it wraps up with, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, ever, ever. For in these things we're more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, family, you hear it? How do we get to be sons? He goes on. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. 
And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him also. We see this idea of the life event of being adopted into the family of God. We who were not children have become children of God. We'll flip just a couple of chapters, a couple of books over Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is the Apostle Paul is writing to wives, to husbands, to children, to slaves, to masters. He's speaking to them about the implications of their salvation, about the implications of those who were once children at enmity with God, once estranged, distant, far off, have been brought near. And then he starts speaking about the real implications of that. He speaks about it in terms of husbands and wives. He speaks about it in terms of marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 25, turning to the husbands. He says, husbands, you're to love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. These two types of relationships, adopted as a child or married as a bride. There was no relationship prior to the event. An adopted child before adoption was not a child, but a stranger. A bride before the wedding was not a bride, but someone who had no relationship. The closest of relationships the fully being vested as an heir through adoption or the intimate union of marriage. These pictures of Jesus saying, you, you are my family. You can have no closer relationship than being a Christian, being united to God through Jesus Christ. We can grow in that relationship, but you need to understand that you are the closest of family. You are his beloved. My friends, My friends, I told you about the twins, right? Rachel and Rebecca. They look so much like their mother because they were raised in the love of their mother. They grew to be so much like her that when you saw them, you saw a little picture of their mom. And so often, in good ways and bad, I see myself and my son, and others do too. You see... Our family relationship. And Jesus says here, my family, my true and eternal family will bear that family relationship. My family resemblance, excuse me. My true and eternal family, Jesus says, will bear the family relationship. They will look like their heavenly father. They will look like their brother, Jesus. It's not in their nose. It's not in their body shape. It's not in their hair color. But as verse 35 says, whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, my mother. You see, That as we are obedient in our repentance, as we are obedient in faith, as we come to the Father through the Son and in Him alone, just like we prayed earlier, Thy will be done, Almighty God, on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my life. We bear that family resemblance. And Jesus says, You are my family. Do you know this morning what it is to be a part of the family of God? Do you embrace it? Do you love it? Do you thank God for it? Have you repented of your sins and have you placed your hope fully in Jesus? If not, let today be the day of your adoption. Let today be the day that you cast your sins upon Jesus and you say, thank you, Lord God, that yesterday I was a stranger and far off, but today I am your beloved child and you pay attention to me. You love me. You embrace me. You've called me to be a part of your family. 
and you rejoice. For no, Jesus is not diminishing the love that he had for his mother, his brothers and sisters, but what he is doing is elevating the love and our understanding of the love that he has for those who are in him. I pray that God, if you today know that relationship, if you have known that family relationship for years, I pray that today that God, through his word, would increase your assurance of that, that you would know the joy of family eternal through Christ and rejoice in it. Be excited in it that you will never become estranged. You will never be cast out. You'll never be disowned for you have been adopted. And the promise is that fully human Jesus, that fully divine Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God, is that fully sufficient and significant and undeniable promise that through him you are saved and you are family. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this, your word, and ask almighty God that you would write it upon our hearts. Father, forgive us for uh, glossing past uh, simple narrative accounts of events in the life of our Savior. Forgive us, Lord God, for misinterpretation where we simply assume that Jesus' motives, inflection, tone, and, and methods would be the same as ours. But, Father, we know that we have a sinless Savior, a Savior who loved and embraced those who were listening to him and sought to make them understand how great was his love for them. For they understood how great a child's love would be for a mom. They understood how great a brother or sister's love would be one for another. But to hear their Savior say, you are my family. You are my family. And nothing will ever change that. We rejoice in this. And Lord, I pray that we would go forth in the joy of Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren, and our heavenly Father, who has loved us eternally through him. For we pray in that name. Amen. Mm -hmm.